Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ryan Driscoll-Tate, and our guest today is Laura Arata. She's an assistant professor at Oklahoma State University and the author of a new book called Race in the Wild West, which is out now through the University of Oklahoma Press. Laura Arata, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to talk about Sarah. Yes. And before we talk about Sarah Bickford, who's the protagonist of this new book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I am an assistant professor of history at Oklahoma State University. I'm also the director of public history. Um, And I actually grew up on a working ranch in California. So I was kind of steeped with these ideas of the Wild West very early on. And I just like, I want to make sure people know that, that this is not Laura Arata takes down the Wild West. Laura Arata is very excited about the legends of the Wild West. So is that how this project began for you? What was the inspiration behind it? So the first time I went to Virginia City was actually in 2007, and I was there for a public history field school with Washington State University, where I was getting my master's degree. And I remember walking around in this town and just being really fascinated by all these old buildings and a lot of old buildings that still had their contents in them from many, many decades earlier. And one of those buildings is the site of this really famous lynching that um, anywhere you go in Virginia City, if you're in like roughly that part of the country, you're going to encounter the Montana vigilantes. Um, and so I remember seeing this little just like literally one regular, you know, eight by eleven and a half sheet of paper on the wall talking about this woman named Sarah Bickford who owned this building at one point and owned the water company. And it was like two typed paragraphs. And I was like, well, there's like, there's gotta be more of a story here. Um, But it wasn't clear what that story was or how I was going to be able to track it down. So I ended up writing my master's thesis about business and consumer culture more generally in Virginia city. And writing about another store in this town that was owned by two women, Anna and Mary McGovern, which is also still there. And it's a fascinating place. And I was able to find a lot about them. But Sarah had ended up in a footnote in my master's thesis. And that footnote just like haunted me. Where I always felt like there has to be so much more to this woman's story. And I'm going to dive in and see if I can find her. So that's what I did. And that's where this book came from. Yeah. You're really bringing her up from the footnotes. Um, So before we jump in, I wanted to ask you if you could set the scene for our listeners. Tell us a little bit about Virginia City. Um, This is after the Civil War. Is this a frontier town? And also what are the race relations like on the ground already? 
Yeah. So there's a lot happening in Virginia City in the 1860s. And I think one of the really important things to keep in mind is that this town literally does spring up out of nowhere. If you are in that part of Montana in May of 1863, there's nothing there that like white Americans would recognize as any kind of a settlement or having much of a human presence. Um, and then it just turns into a boom town overnight. Like within a couple of weeks, you've got as many as 10,000 people there who have rushed in from other mining frontiers, either other parts of Montana or from farther west. And it really is this true mixing ground of people from all over the place. There's people from all different parts of Europe. There's Chinese people there. There's a few African-Americans, at least in this initial rush that we don't know a whole lot about, but there's like just enough in the sources that we know they were there. And there's Irish and German and English and Jewish and French and just people from every kind of background. A lot of them are trying to get away from the civil war. So are like really actively making a decision that they want to be out of places where fighting is really intense or sectional divisions are really intense. And you see both of those sectional divisions in Virginia city. There's a definite divide between supporters of the union and supporters of the Confederacy and everything that goes along with that. Um, and there's also, you know, there's a very distinctive Native American presence in this place as well, where it's not that there aren't people there. There's just, you know, people there that can be sort of ignored in the context of it being a mining boomtown, which is also one of the stories of the West we have to try and be really aware of. Um, so the other thing about it that I think is really crucial to understanding this story is that it's super isolated. People are able to get there really quickly when they hear about this gold strike because it's in the middle of summer. Like conditions are good. It's easier to travel there. You've got Salt Lake City, not too terribly far south. Like it's close enough people can hear about it and get to this place. And there's already people in like Bannock, Montana that are mining for gold and um, people are exploring in Idaho, like what's now Idaho and other places for gold. But they all kind of know that once the winter sets in, they're going to be cut off from everything else. Like the Rocky Mountain passes are going to be pretty snow choked. It's going to be hard to get in and out of this place. And that really ends up defining these first couple of winters. So all of that is crashing together. Um, and then on top of it, when Montana territory is split off from Idaho Congress just kind of forgets that it might need a criminal code and some things because like the civil war is happening. There's other things to be concerned with. So it's this really interesting mix. Yeah. And people. And yeah, I think you just did a really great job of just summing up Western white settlements in general uh, in this region. And I was wondering, you know, before we jump into Sarah Bickford, you mentioned that two paragraph description how did people understand Sarah Bickford before this book? What was her story as it was known to historians already? So for a long time, like she died in 1931. And I think for a few decades after that, people just kind of 
I don't want to say forgot about her because I think there's been like a consistent awareness that she lived in this place and was an important part of the life of this town for a long time. But for whatever reason, people just didn't talk about her race a lot. So it's kind of widely known that there's this woman that owns the water company. And if you really dig in, people will acknowledge, well, yeah, there was this African-American woman that owned the water company, but it's not really talked about in terms of what race must have meant for her living in this community. So I know like when I first encountered her story and first started asking questions, the consistent response I always got was, well, she's a black woman who owns the water company and that in and of itself is a story. And that's the story. And I remember the first time that I was like, well, yes, but she's a black woman who owns the water company and is promoting tourism at the site of a lynching. Like that also has to be part of the story and we need to talk about it. And there was this real disconnect. It felt like to me between her owning this building that she must've made such an active decision to own where this lynching happened. And then the fact that she has a water company office there. And I think, you know, those things were really connected for her. So part of my mission was to make sure they were reconnected and in context in her life. Yeah. You do a great job in this book at cracking open a story that hadn't really been cracked open before. But before we even get to that, I did want to go back for our listeners who might not be familiar, who were the Montana vigilantes it's a mightily famous story for anyone who grows up in that region uh, and for people who are familiar with it. But for those who don't know that story, what's that all about? Yeah, it's such a fascinating story, like all of these little side stories that converge into this bigger story. Um, so they're one of, I mean, honestly, the most popular legends in Montana. Like anywhere that you go in Montana, you'll see like little homages to them you'll see the symbol 3777 which they didn't actually use in the 1860s like it comes about later but now it's this really widely regarded symbol of the vigilantes it's actually on the montana highway patrol emblem if you look really closely as sort of a reference to this early law and order um and they're really widely credited with like establishing civilization in this place that has been a wilderness right up until right, people arrive in what becomes Virginia City and start mining for gold. Um, so basically what happens, there's been about a year of white Americans starting to settle in this location. Bannock is a few miles away and they've had one winter in Bannock. Um, and by 1863, it's really clear that like, once all the roads are closed because of weather and because of snow, you're pretty much stuck there. And you know that you're kind of stuck with all the people that are in this town with you, whether they're like good, bad or otherwise. And there's this real growing sense of dread in 1863 that it feels like there's been a lot of highway robberies. It feels like there's been a lot of crime and a lot of murders and there's a group of men who are like, you know what, we just need to take this into our own hands because law and order isn't arriving here to do anything about it. And there's rumors that maybe the sheriff himself is the head of this really calculated and like vicious gang of road agents. And you can kind of see how the fear sets in, right? Because if you're 
truly that isolated and you're that vulnerable and even the people who are supposed to protect you might be right in league with people who are committing crimes, then there is that heightened sense of fear. And what are you going to do once you're really, truly like, you know, by yourself in this place? Um, And Henry Plummer, I talk about him quite a bit in my book. And there's some other really fascinating studies of Henry Plummer as the sheriff who is lynched, like they lynch him on his own gallows pretty early on um, in these events. But one thing we can say about him for sure, whether or not he's like in charge of this ruthless band of criminals or not, is sort of open to debate. But he did make some really, really bad choices in hiring deputies. And he hires deputies who are known to have committed murder. Some of his deputies murder one of his other deputies, like in broad daylight on the main street in Virginia City in 1863. So he exercises bad judgment and gets himself into trouble with that. And so basically just there's a whole bunch of highway robberies that are successful and there's several murders that seem really brutal. And so a group of men who live in Virginia City get together and like, you know what, we have to put a stop to this and... We can't really throw anybody in jail because we don't have a jail. and We can't really prosecute anybody very well because the laws are still kind of iffy um, in this part of the territory. So they just set out to start lynching anybody who might be complicit in these crimes. And they lynched 22 people in 37 days and some more after that it's one of the bloodiest episodes of lynching in american history like single episodes but i think it gets talked about differently because it's white men lynching other white men for the most part and so that makes it safer fodder to be like wild west legend than other episodes of lynching so sarah bickford a black woman comes to own this building uh and almost becomes like a tourism booster around this episode so walk us through that uh how does that happen how does this come to pass yes i should have started there there's just like so many things i want to tell you about with sarah Um, so the vigilantes one of their earliest lynching well they lynch the sheriff on his own gallows right they dispatch with a bunch of people they don't like and then there's this famous quintuple lynching where they lynch five men side by side in this unfinished building on main street in Virginia city. And that building becomes really important because now it's like this focal point of tourism in Virginia city. It's one of the first places you have to go when you go to Virginia city. It's known as the hangman's building. And Sarah owned this building for like a really long time. And no one had quite made the connection that it's literally still around today and it's known as the hangman's building because she had the foresight to preserve it and to acknowledge that something historic had happened there that needed to be saved. Um, so that in and of itself is pretty profound, actually. And I'm really sorry. I think I actually just like forgot your question entirely because I got excited. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. All I was asking is, what did she do to promote tourism? And you were talking about the historic preservation of the building. Uh, was there anything else that she was doing at that time? Uh, yeah, it's one of the really fascinating parts of her life. And it's hard to pin down a little bit because she didn't leave a lot of documents, right? Talking about 
why she chose to preserve this building. I have some speculations about it that I talk about in the book, but um, she had done other things throughout her life that lead me to believe she was pretty in tune with the rhythms of people visiting this town for a long time. Like she arrives in 1871. It's still the territorial capital. So there's a lot of people who are coming there just like to do business, right? Of various kinds. And it's still the seat of the county. So it would have been that for pretty much her whole life living there. Um, one of her early businesses is a restaurant and it's not too far down from where the courthouse is located. So we can presume she's probably catering in, um, you know, making meals and feeding people who are visiting this courthouse that are there to do business and various kinds of things. So I think she had certainly been engaged in that kind of business long before people really gave her credit for. and. After she buys this building, um, before she actually opens up the ceiling and starts inviting people in to view it as the hangman's building, um, we know that she opened up a little like a rest stop for female tourists in one side of it. So as automobile tourism increases, there's a lot more people that are driving to Yellowstone National Park, for example. And... Virginia City is a declining community. There's not really any places for travelers to stop. And the Virginia City newspaper is always pleading with business owners to make the town comfortable for tourists because they're going to bring in dollars. And she's one of the really early and really active business owners who's engaged with that by making this comfortable place that like women specifically can stop and wash up and rest for a little bit. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you because she's originally from Tennessee. Uh, how does she come to become, to migrate out West and then become a business owner? Yeah. So she's born in slavery in Washington County, Tennessee, which is in far Eastern Tennessee. And it's an area where there is slavery. It's certainly present, but it's not like plantation slavery, like you would see in Western Tennessee. And her owner um, is the proprietor of, it's kind of like a hotel and a bed and breakfast in Jonesboro, Tennessee. So my, my suspicion, like my educated guess on this, because of course the records are very limited as to what she was doing during her childhood in Jonesboro and the Civil War is happening during part of that time as well. Um, but she's probably working in this hotel so that, I think, probably gave her an inherent set of skills in terms of making meals and kind of keeping a boarding house, that type of environment. So after the Civil War, she goes to Knoxville for a little while. And then um, a man named John Luttrell Murphy is appointed an associate justice of Montana Territory and He's got some sort of mutual acquaintances with Sarah and he brings her west. So she arrives in Montana with him in very early 1871. And she marries not too long after that. So that's also going on in her story. But she opens a restaurant and a bakery pretty early on. So she's a business owner by the late 1870s, at least in Virginia City. Um, 
So she's always kind of got that aspect of her life where she's doing something in Virginia City that is like a public facing business. Yeah. I mean, she's in what we would today call the hospitality industry, right? And I'm wondering if you could talk, because you're a public historian, do you think that what Sarah Bigfoot is doing is public history? Is, is this a 19th century or early 20th century version of that? It's such a great question. I spent a lot of time thinking about this question, honestly. Um, I mean, in one sense, I think yes, because she is very um, attentive to preserving this legacy. And it's not something, honestly, that a lot of people are thinking about at that time, like after the turn of the 20th century, right? Everyone is talking about progress and modernity and what like the next thing is going to be. And she's like, no, I'm going to. I'm going to save this old building actually. And she doesn't have to, like she had her choice. She could have purchased a number of buildings in Virginia city by that point. So something about that is meaningful to her, but I do think she also would have had an awareness that it was not so much about preserving in total accuracy, every detail of what happened there. I think she was very, thoughtful that she was preserving a legend and that she knew people were interested in this as a legend that was you know really overblown and romanticized and fictionalized in a lot of ways and i think you really have to give her credit for being aware of that at that time absolutely and i don't know if this can be answered in your sources and i'm assuming not and i wanted to ask you about how we should feel or understand about this She's an African-American woman and a former slave, and she's preserving the site of a lynching. What from the source material do you think were her thoughts about this? Or at least how should we understand it? Okay, so this is one of the, I mean, was one of the really challenging questions that I had to grapple with pretty early on, right? Like, why does Sarah make this decision? I, I want to give her credit that she's made an active decision that she is going to promote tourism at the site of this lynching. And there was this really curious thing happening in remembering her where if you asked people in Virginia City, it was always just, well, she's a black woman who owned the water company. And they had a little space set up that like commemorated the water company office in this building. Um, but nobody really seemed to want to talk about the fact that like she owns this specific building and it was not an accident that she owned this building. And I remember the first time I brought this up to someone and it was like, well, but you know, she's promoting the site of this lynching and that has to mean something. And it got like very uncomfortable very quickly, right? Because there's so much wrapped up, um, in all of that. But the more I researched it and the more I learned about her as a person and Virginia City at this time, and then of course, just like I'm, you know, really like reading and thinking about American history at that time in the late 19th century, um, it started to make so much more and more and more sense to me that you've got this town. It's really divided between pro-union and pro-confederacy support. At the time of the Civil War, you've got a former slave who's lived through all of those divisions, right, in her early life. And 
you've got this moment where it is still undecided after the Civil War what rights for African Americans are going to look like in this country. And it's easy for us to look back and look at all the failures of Reconstruction and all the things that did or didn't happen for civil rights in the, you know, the late 19th century. But I think it's really important to keep in mind that Sarah's living through those times and observing all these changes happening in the world around her. And she's very much part of that moment for African-Americans wondering, like, is this the point from which right, we're an equal part of the narrative of this country? And to me, it really gives her agency and it really gives her an active role in like just the shaping of the story that becomes the Wild West, right? I don't think for her she needed to think of it in terms of this was a lynching of right white men by other white men. I think she was probably able to look at it and say, well, I've interacted with some of the people who were involved in these events. And she certainly would have, like she certainly knew men who had been vigilantes. Um, her husband, her second husband, there's some speculation, maybe he was, or at least was a supporter of the vigilantes. So it's very much her generation of people that are right part of that story. And I just think, honestly, that's such a powerful moment of agency of her saying, you know what, I have just as much of a right to claim a place in telling this story as anybody else. And my story is just as much part of this town and of the West as anybody else. And I think coming from Tennessee, it probably really meant something to her to adopt this identity as a Westerner. And she certainly would have been aware of all these conversations of rebuilding the nation in the West and the potential of reunifying the West and race maybe meaning different things there than it did to someone who grew up in right, the Deep South, for example. And so the more I thought about it, the more it just made sense to me as her engaging with this story that was part of the West. And I have my own speculations about why she might have you know, pretty actively supported that vigilante legend. I think it probably did mean something. Yeah. Yeah. And the importance of those social connections and those social ties is just a reminder, right? That place matters. And I think that's very intuitive oftentimes to historians of the West. I wanted to ask you though, what, her story tells us about black life in the West and the rural West. And if there's anything that we can extrapolate out, what is this, what do we learn from this story in, a, in writ large? Yeah. I think the thing that has always stood out to me so much about her story um, is just in some ways how common it was, how average it was. And we tend to, um, when we're looking back on history and looking for like the lives of black women in the rural West specifically, you look for the outliers, right? You look for the people who were notorious that stood out and therefore people talked about them. And there's been this assumption, some of it really fair for a long time, that those are the women we'll find sources about. And then if you have just 
people who were quietly living lives in some of these towns in the rural West, you're just not going to find a lot about them. Um, and that was my attitude too. When I went into it, I thought, well, I'm going to, you know, search in the newspapers and see what I can find about her. And I really assumed that they would talk about her as this woman who was black, who lived in this town. And I went looking for those racial markers when I first started doing my research and I really didn't find anything. And well, maybe I won't be able to find enough to tell this whole story. And the real turning point was when I realized that the newspaper was talking about her. It was talking about other African-American people who lived in this town that I was able to identify through census records and other sources, but they weren't being identified as people who were African-American. And so that opened up a whole new way of needing to look at the history of this town and try and research individual people in this town. Because if you don't know that you're looking for someone of a certain, right, ethnicity, skin color, background, whatever it is, and that's not being presented to you in the sources, you really have to be aware of it. Like you have to know what you're looking for before, you know, you look, I guess if that makes sense. And so it really made me think that if there's all this space in Virginia City, which is just as divided and just as, you know, split between political parties, for example, as other places, and really concerned with race in a lot of ways. Like there's a lot of talk about um, the place of Chinese in Montana and the place of African Americans writ large in the West. And those kinds of conversations are happening in Virginia City. But they're not talking about their own residents in the same way. And if that's true of Virginia City, then it really makes me wonder if it could be true of other places in the West. But I did get uniquely lucky in that Virginia City has a newspaper for the entire course of its existence. And it was um, a rich documentary source that I wouldn't have been able to do this project without. So yeah. finding sources is still an issue, but I think her life opens up these questions of, you know, can we look at these smaller rural places that have seemed like there's just not enough there for us to really tell complete stories. And can we try and suss out some of those stories, like either by searching for individual people or by reconstructing the world around them, which I had to do a lot of in Sarah's case too, but it was a really worthwhile endeavor. Yeah. And you do that really well in this book is reconstructing that world. And you're raising the points about all the ways in which that's incredibly difficult uh, when in, when facets of people's lives are not being publicly uh, left in public records. I, I want to ask you, though, um, to go back to this question about what we should take away from this book. And you've referenced one of those things, right, which is that the story is not exceptional. Are there other things as well? I mean, that's so much a part of it. Like, Sarah was exceptional, right? She's this incredible, unique, really um, brave, strong person. I mean, she goes through so much stuff. Um, but the fact that she is allowed to, in a lot of ways, just kind of be average and just be a member of this community who's living her life and not having attention drawn to her all the time because of her race is really important. I think that meant something to her during her lifetime. Like, she makes active decisions that she's going to stay in Virginia City. 
And she didn't have to. She has all these connections back east. She travels to Tennessee pretty frequently and she spends time in St. Louis and she spends time going back um, to other places. And like I give her credit, she could have made a move somewhere else if she wanted to. She certainly had that capability. So there's something in her choice. Like, like you said earlier, right? Place matters. And this place was clearly important to her. And just on a more general level, I just want everybody to know how amazing she is. Like she goes through so many things in her life. And it's really just such a testament to human resilience and fortitude and how much a woman can accomplish when she puts her mind to what she wants to do. Like she has this incredible complete life despite, you know, growing up in slavery and despite having this really abusive first husband and the fact that her entire family, like all of her children, she's already been married and divorced and lost all three of her children from her first marriage by the time she's 24. I mean, that's, that's incredible when you think about it in those terms, right? But yet she goes on and she does all these other really incredible things. And I'm just I'm so inspired by her. Yeah. And, you know, I want to talk to you about this because this is a, a really incredible work of historical recovery. And it's not like you can just walk into the National Archives and, and look at Sarah Bickford's box of records, which are like, you know, 800 boxes deep or something. You're pulling together this woman's life out of fragments in the archive. And I want to know, first of all, do you have any favorite sources uh, that you, you used in the making of this book? Um, one or two of your favorites? I would love to. Um... So one of the first places I went looking for information actually wasn't in Montana. It was in Tennessee. Um, they had been lucky enough to be the recipient of a grant from the National Trust for Historic Preservation that allowed me to go to Tennessee. I really wanted to try and track down where she was born because there were questions about that when I started researching her. Um, and I remember walking into the first archive and you know, everyone there was super nice and they were like really trying to be patient with me and help me. And of course I was still like a baby grad student, right. With bright eyes and all these questions that I was going to answer. Um, and I remember telling the archivist, like, okay, I'm looking for this like single lone slave woman that I think was owned by this family. Maybe there's a couple of names I have for her and this is everything I know. Um, and I remember just the look of sort of amusement and bewilderment on you know this archivist's face she was just like oh i'm really gonna try and help you but you know good luck um but there was this incredible moment on that trip where you know like a lot of good historical training you start with the census we want to know what people are in a place that we're looking at and the census taker for jonesboro tennessee in 1860 had just sort of decided and i haven't decided if this is a mistake or like a deliberate act of defiance or quite what his motivation was but he recorded every single slave living in jonesboro on schedule one which of course in 1860 is that's the free schedule right and then schedule two is slaves and schedule two slaves are not enumerated by name they're just listed by age and color and sex and so finding these names on Schedule 1 
was really powerful. And I actually found her on that first trip. And it was this, you know, like real moment of encouragement and inspiration um, where someone had actually come through after the census was taken and crossed out all the names of the slaves on this enumeration and written in schedule two, which just like made it even more visible that these are slaves. And I kind of thought, well, the universe is with me, right? If the universe is going to help me find this single lone slave woman that I'm looking for in her girlhood in Eastern Tennessee, like of all places for a census taker to enumerate slaves in that year, something is happening that I need to follow up on. And then there was a paper written by one of her daughters when she was a student at the University of Chicago that was a huge breakthrough. And I use this all the time to tell my students to like really be thoughtful about their own papers, right? Because this is literally just a paper she wrote for a college class and it became one of my most amazing sources. Um, but the real like powerful, and there are a lot of powerful moments in this journey, but the one that like always gives me chills and will, I will always go back to is the reason for why we do this and why it matters so much that historians do the work we do. Um, was I was at this moment where I kind of thought maybe I had hit the limit of everything I could find about Sarah. I had found this great census document and I had a few things. I had enough to probably write like a really good article, but turning it into a whole PhD was still looking a little bit iffy. And I was looking for something else entirely. I was, just happened to be looking through the Virginia City newspaper and I was looking for actually things about the Nez Perce War. And I was really curious in these ideas of tourism and like scary tourism that becomes wild west tourism. Um, and I stumbled across the obituary for Sarah's son. And I knew she had a couple of children that had died. It wasn't really clear what the names of some of those children were. And so I found this obituary for James Leonard Brown. And it didn't identify him as being African-American. It was one of those moments where I thought, huh, well, maybe I have to look at these sources in a different way. Maybe they do talk about her, but maybe they just didn't mention her race. Like that's a whole new area of digging into this for me. But I remember finding that obituary and having this really profound moment of like literally just sitting there crying at the microfilm machine for quite a while because... I was going to be able to give James Leonard back his name in the historical record. Like if there was ever a powerful testament to why we need to tell history and why we keep looking for these stories, like that was that moment. And it just was such a powerful experience that history matters and telling this history matters. So I will never forget that. And that was the moment at which I was like, I don't care what it, or how long it takes me, I am going to write this story about Sarah because she deserves to have her story talked about. So here we are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, perseverance is sometimes one of the, the greatest skills of an historian. And I think that this is one of those books where when you read it, you could have easily seen in graduate school where you would have just kind of spun this off as an article and walked away from it. But you realize that there actually was a very fascinating, intricate book here, but it required a longer effort. And, I, and, it's, and it's great that you did that. I wanted to ask you, 
and our listeners are probably going to have a lot of these questions, but I want to ask you, what did you find most surprising when you were working on this book? What surprised you the most? There were so many things. I think one of the big ones, um, and just like you're talking, you know, sometimes this research takes a lot of time. Like I spent 10 years sussing out all of these sources to write about her, but once I really got into it, it was surprising how visible she really was in the historical record, but that she had really been rendered pretty invisible by people not calling attention to her race. And that is counter to everything I had sort of been, you know, like conditioned to believe sources were going to tell me about African-American women in the West. And it's kind of a profound realization in some ways that maybe there are more of these stories that we just haven't really recognized because people were just living their lives and being part of their communities. And it doesn't mean that race wasn't important or that they didn't feel pressures of race or that there weren't difficulties to overcome because of it. But it opens up to me a whole new, really exciting avenue of studying this history in the West that I just think is. Yeah. You know, Laura, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but I want to ask you before we go, first of all, I know this book just came out, but is there anything that you're working on next? Do you have anything else uh, that might be on the drawing board for you? I do. And it's like Sarah has more things that um, need to go out into the world, right? So she has four children from her second marriage. And it turns out that one of her daughters, her name was Virginia, actually ended up getting married and moving to Oklahoma. And so she lived not too far from where I currently live in Oklahoma. Um, and she worked for a really another really interesting person named James Cootie Johnson, who was an Afro Creek, and he was the first um, he was the first black lawyer in Indian Territory. And he's also a fascinating person. So she was his secretary for at least a few years. And I'm really interested in seeing what I can find about James Cootie Johnson and Virginia Davidson and some of the different things that they did for African-Americans in Oklahoma during a time of really intense Jim Crow segregation. And um, Virginia would have been in Oklahoma at the time of the Tulsa massacre. So interested in digging a little bit more into that story. So that'll be my next project. So Sarah is still continuing on into my next, my next book. That's excellent. Well, Laura, thanks so much for coming on. Um, I can't recommend enough your new book, Race in the Wild West, which is out now for the University of Oklahoma Press. Uh, our listeners should get out and grab a copy. But thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. And be sure to come back when that next chapter of Sarah's life has been written. Absolutely. Okay. Take care. Thank you.